Everyday consumers are being bombarded with the next big thing in health, wellness, and fitness. What's the future of keeping ourselves healthy, and what's just a passing fad? Hi, I'm Joey Thurman, and if you don't know me, I'm a health and fitness expert and author. I've been fortunate enough to work with celebrities, athletes, C-suite executives, and everyone in between. I've been featured on the Today Show, Live with Kelly and Ryan, Good Morning America, TEDx, and lots of other publications. As part of my ever-increasing thirst for knowledge, which ironically happened after college, I decided to create the Fatter Future podcast. What sets this podcast apart is that I am the guinea pig for these episodes. I don't only want to bring in world-class experts on the show, I want to truly get a first-hand experience what it's like to, say, go on ketamine and trip for my depression, go on a three-day fast drinking nothing but coffee and water for age reversal, eat nothing but plants and get the blood work done to back it up, or even get my brain mapped to see how messed up my head is from getting knocked around playing hockey. Once I try these things, I bring on the experts to talk about my experience and explain it to the audience in a digestible manner and ask the true question. Is it a fad or is it the future? Because after all, we don't want to be fatties. Can you imagine living until 120 years old? No, not old and dying on a bed, but living healthy until you're 120, maybe 150. Today, I'm at Harvard Medical School. No, I didn't get in. I am not that smart. You all know that by now. But I'm interviewing Sir. Yes, Sir. He was knighted Dr. David Sinclair. He wrote the book Lifespan and tells you how you're aging, why you're aging. Aging should be classified as a disease and what you can do to live longer. Here's my conversation with Sir Dr. David Sinclair. All right, welcome to another episode of the Fad or Future podcast. I have big news. I got into Harvard. I, well, I opened the front door and I walked in and I went past security. There's no, no way that I could actually get into Harvard. Uh, but I'm sitting here with David Sinclair. Now, I don't know if you know who David is. If you don't, you've probably been living under a rock. David, you know, before you start talking here, I think you've got lots of accolades, but I think the biggest, you've got Arnold Schwarzenegger, a letter from him on your office wall here. Not bad, right? Yeah, he's a big hero of mine. Um, he's the sort of guy, he's an immigrant too. I'm from Australia. He's Austrian, but uh, yeah, he put, sets his mind to whatever he wants to do and yeah. he does it. So yeah, I, I've got a letter from him saying, David, you must come to California <laughs> and work with me. And I almost did. I was very close to it, but my wife chickened out. She was having another kid. But uh, I've got a photo of there. Listeners, you could see this photo. It's He's uh, he's a little bit taller than me, not by much, but uh, he's squeezing my hand so tightly and I'm there. Oh, he is. Yeah. And I've got this wince on my face. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty good. I, I walked, I mean, you've got all of these accolades all over your office, but the one thing that drew me was- the governor. No, that was pretty good. All right, David, tell me a little bit about yourself. You're the author of Lifespan, Why We Age and Why We Don't Have To. You've got a PhD, so should I call you doctor? Please don't. <laughs> All right, doctor. Uh, so, tell me a little bit about yourself um, and your journey to the States here. Well, so, I'm, I'm just a regular kid. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I'm actually pretty lucky that I landed at Harvard. But what got me here was a passion to make my, my life consequential. And so, I thought when I was young, one of the things that nobody's talking about is why don't we stay young? And my grandmother taught me to, to do good things. 
And she lived through World War II and the aftermath. And she said, humans screw up everything. Adults screw up everything. Why don't you try to stay young at heart? She told me when I was six, that that was the best age. I should try to stay six. And my wife would tell you I've succeeded to have a mental attitude of a six-year-old. My wife would say the same thing to me. It, It really helps in some ways. And so I've managed to maintain my curiosity and wonder about the world. And what I've set my sights on is to understand why we age and work on ways that we don't have to. Mm. But it's it's bigger than that, actually, even though that sounds pretty big. My goal is to change the way we do medicine right now. Right now, medicine is what I call whack-a-mole. We get sick, we go to the doctor, we get a medicine, they push us out the door, and they keep doing that and doing that. We get another disease, especially when we're old, we're coming back yeah. every year with another disease. And then the doctors just repeat that until failure. Whereas my view is that medicine should start early. We should be taking care of ourselves in ways that are scientific based, scientifically based. And we can live at least 10 years longer if we do those things for most of us. Most of aging, our lifespan, if you study twins, mm-hmm. 80% of their longevity is in their own hands. It's not genetically predetermined, which is fantastic. Really? Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to understand. What is it about our diet, exercise, and a little bit about genes that makes people live so long? And how do we make that 10 times better? Well, I mean, that's interesting because a lot of people think that aging is just this natural process and and we, every, you know, every day we get a day older and then we celebrate these birthdays and, hey, I'm 20, 30 years from dying because I don't want to die old and decrepit in a bed and be a, vet, a vegetable and live those last several years of my life in a bed. But can we actually research aging and quantify it and i mean even talk about living to i mean we could live until 120 years old is that something that we actually should study oh for sure just because aging is natural doesn't mean we shouldn't work on it right. cancer used to be fairly natural 100 years ago still is and you know there's nothing about our world that we live in that's natural you and i here are in this air conditioned room nine floors above the the earth or wearing clothes, you know, it goes on and on. Right. There's nothing natural. So that argument you got to throw out the window. But what's what's important about aging as now we now understand it is that it's malleable. We can really change its trajectory. And that those birthday candles mean very little. <laughs> we can I could take Joe, I could take your blood and I could tell you how old you are biologically, quite accurately, and predict when you're going to die. And you might say, I don't want to know that. That's scary. Right. That's most people's reaction. But when I tell you that you can alter the trajectory of that clock that I measure, then that's empowering. That makes sense because I think a lot of people, if they hear that, you know, hey, you did you check my blood and I'm going to die at 75.5 years old, that's going to freak me out. I, I'm going to you know, only live every single year. I'm like, I've got 30 years left. I've got 20 years left. But you're saying that actually if, if you check that and then you use that as a standard, you think, okay, we can actually extend that. No question. There are things we can do in our daily lives and research that we're doing here in this lab that show that you can slow that clock's ticking. And we've got new gene therapies that are actually reversing the causes of aging and the actual clock. And you can, at least in in animals that we're studying, within four weeks, we can take their age back to being a very young animal again. Four weeks. Four weeks of treatment. Wow. And old mice get their vision back again. Uh, And we've done this with the eye and we're thinking if we can do this on the eye, we can do it on probably any part of the body. That's amazing. So why do we age? I mean, is it one single factor, a bunch of things? What have you found? Well, here's the remarkable thing. When I started in this field, I'm now 50. Um, uh, and and people, if, if you Google him, you, you do not look 50. 
Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, maybe, maybe, usually maybe it's just, you know. I worry that people's eyesight is going. <laughs> maybe my eyesight's going. You need, to, you need to check me like the mice. Yeah, there, there's another trick. I'll, I'll tell a secret here. One, one secret to longevity, well, to looking young, uh-huh. is to use old photographs. It works great, especially with this internet age. Uh, no, but I, I haven't got a gray hair. I haven't lost any hair yet. So I'm, I'm feeling like I did when I was 20. Wow. That, so far, so far, so good. I haven't measured my actual epigenetic age, which mm-hmm. is that the true clock. Right. Um, I've done some blood tests inside Tracker. We were talking earlier about that. Yeah. That's a company that I'm affiliated with. And for the last 11 years, I've been taking my blood and making sure if anything goes out of whack, I get that back to be optimal. Yeah. Whereas if a doctor looked at my bloods, they'd say everything's normal. Well, what's normal? Right. Within a range for for an ad- average human being, but who's average and who wants to be average? Anyway? And they're just comparing you to people that are your age and height and weight. So it, there's millions and millions upon people that are comparing you against. Right, right. And your average 50-year-old is, is not in good health in right. my view anyway, and certainly older ages. So I'm doing okay. So what you asked me, what, what causes aging? Yeah. This is the big deal. We used to think that aging was just our bodies falling apart. And if that were true, there was not, there's really nothing we could do except replace bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. But we're, what we've realized is that there are the equivalent of body shop repair guys in our bodies that can keep us younger, keep ourselves healthy. Um, and that I thought was going to be the biggest thing that I learned and discovered in my career. But just in the last couple of years, there's been a new breakthrough in the lab that has blown me away. And that's the fact that we don't just need to slow down aging. We can actually reverse it. And the reason I say that that's possible is that we've got very good evidence, if not proof, that we're going to be publishing soon. Wow. It's available online. If anyone wants to check out the research, uh, you can Google my name and my student whose last name is Lou, L-U. Okay. Um, and type in the word reprogramming. You'll find it online. Check it out. What it says is that we've got a, a backup hard drive, a a memory of being young that we can tap into and reset the biological age of our tissues with a really? gene therapy. And eventually, we're hoping it won't be a gene therapy. It'll be some molecules that we can rub on our skin or take for breakfast. So, you just get up in the morning and rub something on your skin and you know, all of a sudden, you're Benjamin Button? Well, yeah, you might be. It's not beyond beyond possibility. You know, I'm, I'm often as the scientist that that speculates too much. Mm-hmm. But I'm looking into the future and I'm always saying, I don't want to know what's possible tomorrow. I want to know if something's impossible. And from what I've seen, it's not impossible that we could reset the entire age of the body. Wow. And what we're using are genes that are normally involved in making us embryos and developing in the womb. And we're turning these on and we found it's quite safe to do this, and at least in mice so far. And it gives us the healing properties and the, the health of a very young child. Yeah, because you, you always hear that you can't reverse aging and maybe we can slow it down. But as far as what you're saying, I mean, you're kind of going against the status quo and that it might be possible to turn back the clock. Yeah. Yeah. So, to be clear, we haven't done any human studies with mm-hmm. this new technology. The old one with the body shop repairman, we've been developing molecules and discovering genes for 20 years. That that was not that difficult. Yeah. But this new stuff, it's really cutting edge and it's only in mice so far. But the mere fact that we can reset a mouse's eye to be young again and measure its clock that's gone backwards is a proof of concept that I thought would never be possible. Yeah. 
And you know, every every all science starts with an animal study, but the fact that we can do it, in my mind, means that we can do it in people because we're no different in terms of having this this system mm-hmm. that controls aging. The same control patterns that go awry during aging to cause a mouse to age that we reset this clock is the same one in our bodies. Wow. So now if we can do this, what are the things that you found that will make somebody age faster and then we can actually, you know, slow things down? I mean, in the use you talk about in your book, there, there's a whole list of things that, that you found. I mean, telomeres and DNA damage, and uh, you talk about how, how we're aging and we're kind of like a DVD and we're losing information essentially. Yeah, the, there are many hallmarks of aging. There's eight or nine of these major ones. You mentioned telomeres, there's stem cell loss, there's senescent cells, these zombie cells in the body. But what I've been working on and I've written about in my book is a unifying theory that attempts to explain why all of those things happen. Okay. Is there an upstream source of the river that we can dam besides trying to dam up each of these tributaries? I think we've got a good chance at, at having found this. Really? And that idea is that we lose information in our bodies over time. So what does that mean, information? Right? Yeah. So when we're born, we have a set of instructions to be young and healthy. We have our genome, which is the DNA molecule from our parents. But that's not enough. That doesn't build a human. That's just a chemical. So the systems that read the DNA and instruct cells to do what they should do and become brain cells instead of liver cells, that's called the epigenome. And that loops the DNA in certain ways that either turns genes off or turns them on. And that pattern has to be maintained for as long as you live. And if it breaks down, we know that that causes a whole bunch of problems. And I think that's what's causing aging in the same way that if the genome was a a DVD with the the movie on there. Mm-hmm. The epigenome is the reader, okay. and that aging would be like a, a, the scratches okay. all over the DVD. So, really, the good news is that when we get older, even, actually, when we're teenagers, we're still our clock is advancing pretty quickly. So, there's it's interesting, right? When we're not just getting old at fifty, we're getting old even in our twenties, right? But what we've realized is that that the information to stay young is always in our cells. We haven't lost our genomes. They're still largely intact. It's so our cells the, are, have a memory, yeah, essentially. They do. They've got the instructions. They just don't read it. Another analogy would be that our cells have a gigantic piano of 20,000 keys, each key being a gene, and that the pianist starts playing the wrong notes when, when we're in our 20s and teens. And by the time they're 50, we're 50, she's playing a whole bunch of bad notes. And by the time you're 80, it, it's so messy that you don't even want to listen. You'd walk out of the concert. But now we realize that the piano is still intact. The keys are still there. You just bring in a new pianist and you can play beautiful music again. Okay. Yeah. I've got long fingers, but I'm horrible at piano. <laughs> so uh, I'm like that 80-year-old that has lost their ability to play right there. <laughs> we need to bring in a new pianist. <laughs> yeah. 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 I just don't even bring me in in the, in the first time. I, I'm, I'm like an aging old pianist. All right. That, that, that's the quote of the day, David. Nice yeah. job. Okay. So now you figured all these things out. Now, You've been criticized uh, by colleagues as well, essentially saying that we need to say that aging is more should be quantified as a disease. What are your thoughts around that? Oh, well, I'm still very uh, adamant that aging should be thought of as a medical condition. Mm-hmm. And if you really dive into it, the only difference between a disease and aging is that a disease is a 
disability or a loss of function in the body that happens over time that happens to less than 50% of us. But if it happens to 51%, we call it aging. Right. It's totally arbitrary, majority versus minority. And I'm arguing that just because something's more common, we shouldn't forget about it. We shouldn't say, oh, that's natural. In fact, that's an even greater reason to start working on this and trying to understand how to slow it down. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, because there's so much money spent on, and you talk about this in your book on Alzheimer's and cancer research, which admittedly there should be, but there's very little amount of money that's uh, allotted to you know, focusing on aging. Yeah. It's a fraction of 1% of the US um, research budget at okay. the National Institutes of Health. If we doubled that or made it 10 times, you can just start to imagine the kind of advances we would make. It's really just been a, a band of us uh, brothers and sisters over the last 20 years trying to make our way. Um, the good news is, even though there are a lot of silly headlines in newspapers, the field has been at the cutting edge of biology. There have been two Nobel Prizes awarded for systems that control aging, telomeres and autophagy. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there'll be more. And often people who don't think about this or hear about aging research, they think, oh, this is all snake oil, because a lot of it is. Right. But it... The reason I wrote the book is that the science hasn't made it through to the general public in a way that has been clear and not made even more confusing by headlines. Yeah. So if we essentially start tackling aging earlier and slowing down or reversing it, as eventually hopefully you can be able to prove, what is that going to do to our disease rate? Is, is working on aging and being becoming healthier, is that going to bring down the incidence of maybe Alzheimer's or cancer rates? Oh, it definitely is. So the, the main driver of these diseases, from diabetes to heart disease to Alzheimer's, is aging itself. Little kids don't get Alzheimer's. Yeah. They don't get typically don't get heart disease. The main reason is that the aging is causing cells to lose their ability to fight disease. Now, if we can turn back the clock and have cells act like they're young again and turn on those youthful gene patterns, then diseases should go away. And as we've shown with the eye, if you reprogram the eye to be young again, the mice can see again, right? And so you got to change the com completely the way you think about what's possible, what aging is, and what the arc of our lives will mean when this comes true. That yeah. that we can not just slow down aging, but but one day reverse it. But even even if we're not reversing it just yet, what we know is that there are many things you can do in your daily lives that will greatly impact your pace of aging and how healthy you'll be in your 80s and 90s. Okay. And those the future version of yourself is going to thank you in your 20s, 30s, 40s for having done and made those changes. So, you talk about those things that people can do right now and what are some of those tangible changes? There, there are a bunch and I, I, I list them towards the end of my book, mm -hmm. what I do and what my 80-year-old father does in our attempts to ward off aging. And so far, so good. My father, as I've been very proud of saying is feeling like he's uh, he's 20 again. Now, we don't know why that is, but it certainly bodes well for, and it's nothing less than a beacon of hope for all of us. Yeah. Uh, so, what do we do? So, first of all, I didn't mention this, but what scratches up the DVD, one of the main ones is a broken DNA molecule, a broken chromosome. Okay. And that that's happening all the time. We can't avoid it. We just divide, dividing cells will break chromosomes. And each cell has one or a few of these a day. That's more than 20 trillion of these events in our bodies every day. So we're, we're breaking and repairing all the time. 
And when you break a chromosome, you have to unwrap it because it's wrapped up in proteins. And you basically then have to repackage it. Yeah. And that process of unwrapping and repackaging the chromosomes, we think, leads to this disruption of how the cells package their genome. And over time, those beautiful packages of loops where you want genes to be read versus tight bundles where you want genes to be shut off gets lost, okay? Like okay. the keys being lost. Yeah. So you don't want to have a lot of DNA breaks. So how do you avoid that? Well, you can't really avoid it totally, but you can avoid eating things that cause DNA breaks. So there are toxins in our environment, of course. You don't want pesticides. Avoid the yellow printer ink. I wouldn't link a page. That's highly toxic. Okay. Avoid the sun. So you know why we age. I, I think the reason is that DNA damage to the skin is disrupting this structure of the of the chromosomes. Um, other things that are bad. So scanners at the airport, I think, can do a little bit of damage. I'm uh -huh. less worried than I used to be because those machines are more advanced. But initially, they were probably breaking our chromosomes and accelerating really? it about as much radiation as you get in the flight. But with you and me, you know, we're traveling a lot. Yeah. You don't want to double the, the dosage. Right. So all those things. So that's the main thing. Another thing that I would say, if I could only recommend one or two things, it would be to eat less often, okay. less frequently. And, you know, fasting is a bit of a fad, but I want to say it, it's truly backed up by the science. Yeah. My colleague, uh, Rafa de Cabo down at NIH, he did a big study trying to figure out what composition of diets are best for mammals because he was trying to figure out why calorie restriction in monkeys works well sometimes and not as well in others. Uh -huh. And uh, he spent years doing this and millions of dollars and tens of thousands of mice. And in the end, he found out that what the mice ate didn't matter at all. It was when he gave them the food during the day. Really? And if he packed that into just two hours, they're feeding, those mice all lived the longest. So, they had a 22-hour fast essentially. Yeah. So, I mean, speaking of fasting, I mean, you say that, you know, calorie restriction, and you talk about in your book by, you know, cutting down the uh, amount of calories and we're essentially in a, a state of hunger that can increase our lifespan. Is there a certain percentage of calories? Like if, let's say our, you know, basal metabolic rates, 2000, you know, 10, 15%, what has the research shown that you guys have found that can actually extend the lifespan? Yeah. Well, we don't know if calorie restriction extends human lifespan, but if it didn't, there'd be something wrong with all of the research that's been going on for about 80 years now. Uh -huh. So let, let's assume that it works because a lot of the changes you see when you fast or calorie restrict mimic those of animals that benefit monkeys and dogs and going all the way down to yeast cells. Um, so here's the bottom line. You'll read a lot on the internet and listen to pundits who say, this diet is the one for you. Right. That's BS. The problem is twofold. One is that we're all different. We have different glucose surges throughout throughout the day. Uh -huh. I, for instance, I've got I've got this glucose monitor on under my arm. Um, I see that I shouldn't be eating breakfast. I've got a glucose surge when I wake up every morning. And I'm not hungry. So for me, skipping breakfast and having a late lunch or not at all is the right one for me. But I also have to think a lot. My brain is my living. Yeah. So fasting for three week, three days or a week doesn't suit me. Yeah. And probably for athletes and bodybuilders, that's also out of the question too. I did three and a half days. I was lightheaded the whole time. Yeah. I think it's healthy, but it's really not conducive to, to normal life for yeah. most of us. So that, you know, I'm trying to make the point that we're all different. We have different microbiomes, mm -hmm. different lifestyles, different metabolism. So what you really have to do is to, to read some science, but then try it on yourself and see how you function. 
I think all of us do better when we're hungry a little bit during the day. Yeah. There's no point having three big meals unless you're really trying to build up your body or you know, prepare for, for a, a race. But for those of us who are not athletes, like me- um, <laughs> Who, who I don't know what you're whole, talking about. You were, you were talking about how you had a, had a trainer before we started chatting. So, it, it, well, I'm not going to win any awards for anything. But I, I, being an athlete's a mindset, try. man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, so, yeah, work, figure out what works for you. And we're in the and the second point is that the science isn't mature yet. We do know some things, like the study I just mentioned in mm-hmm. mice. We know that some fasting is good for you, but when to fast in the day and what to eat during the periods of eating and how much. It's not fully worked out. And that's why we have this world where some people say, be a carnivore, keto, right. vegetables. You know, it's probably going to turn out that all of those aren't as bad as we thought yeah. or as good as we thought. And I, in my view, it's when we eat that's more important. Okay. But I think the combination, I'll tell you what works for me, if, if that's any help. Yeah. I don't eat a lot of red meat. Okay. Um, I've seen enough data that, that I don't want a lot, unless I'm trying to build up my body. Sure. Right. Of course, that's different. But if I'm just leading a regular life, trying to live longer and be healthier, mostly plant food, stressed vegetables. So what does that mean? These are vegetables that are picked under con- and grown under conditions that are not perfect. So these greenhouse lettuces that are perfect, yeah. not great. You want ones that have been in the field, under sunlight, eaten a little bit by caterpillars perhaps, okay. not a lot of um, herbicides. Okay. So maybe like an or- organic because they're organic, not spraying right. anything on them. So they have to live in harsher conditions. Yeah. And I- th- I have a theory why why they're so healthy, that they the plants are making molecules to turn on their own defenses. And we have evolved to sense those chemical cues because when our plants are running out and dying, mm-hmm. our bodies need to get ready for, for that. And this is the idea of hormesis. And the concept of plant-human interactions is called xenohormesis. Okay. And this is the concept that that in my book I talk about a lot. It's the hormesis idea should guide your life. Every time your body's getting comfortable, whether it's sitting all day or sitting for many hours or it's eating a lot, never being hungry, that's telling your body, times are good, don't hunker down, don't fight disease, be lazy. Because the body doesn't like to work if it doesn't have to. Yeah, It'll save that energy and put on fat instead. And so what you want to do is to get the body out of its comfort zone, trick it into thinking that you're about to get killed by a saber-toothed tiger or your food supply is running out. Okay. But but don't do it so much that you actually do harm to your body. Now, you talk about there's some different pathways, essentially, that uh, we want to try to mitigate or utilize in the right ways, like the AMPK and the, the mTOR pathway, which you know, mTOR essentially, that's something that can help with muscle tissue growth, correct? But it also, it's been shown to potentially be detrimental to our aging process? Right. So, what we found is that these longevity pathways, and there are three main ones, there's mTOR you mentioned, mm-hmm. it responds to certain types of amino acid supply. There's one called ampikinase, which is metformin will turn that on. And the ones that we worked on and discovered that they control aging uh, back in the 1990s when I first came to the US, those are called sirtuins okay. and they need NAD to work. NAD is a chemical that goes up and down during the day, goes up when you're hungry, goes up when you're exercised, but goes down over time as you age. Okay. All right. So getting back to mTOR, this is the one that guides me with my protein intake. So if you want to bulk up muscle maximally, right. you need a lot of amino acids. mTOR will build your body. But mTOR also controls your body's survival and longevity. 
So it's a yin yang, and mm. it's it's probably not good for your entire life to always been having your mTOR active, building your body. Yeah. And so one of the the principles that guides me is, if I'm going to build up my body or eat a, a big protein meal, I'll offset that with another day where I don't eat a lot of protein. Okay. When I'm not working out. In the attempt to give me the health benefits of longevity, but also not inhibit my ability to build up a lot okay. of new muscle. Now, don't get me wrong. If if you're still eating plants, you'll still build up muscle, just right. not as big and as bulky. You can still be pretty strong yeah. on a plant-based diet, no question. So the 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 meat can signal a, a stronger mTOR response, right? So mTOR is saying, "Hey, man, I got a lot of uh, meat around. Yeah, now it's time to build muscle, and then you can trick it later." Not have a lot of branch chain amino acids, leucine, isoleucine, valine, uh-huh. and then mTOR shuts down and says, "Wow, I better put my effort into fixing the body." Yeah. Okay. So you talked about mTOR. What's AMPK? AMPK is an. These are all enzymes. Mm-hmm. So AMPK is an enzyme that senses how much energy our cells have and, and are making. The energy is called ATP, and if we have low levels of ATP, AMPK will respond and give the body more energy production. It'll help burn fat. It'll make our body more insulin sensitive. Okay. And it'll boost uh, the activity of our mitochondria. And when you, when all that's happening, your metabolism goes up. And this is kind of like an athlete. Yeah. And you can mimic that by taking metformin. Uh, and berberine is, is poor man's metformin, so to speak. Okay. Berberine you can get on the internet. We published in this lab that it does activate AMPK um, and boost mitochondria. But metformin requires a prescription. So I'm taking metformin. Okay. And uh, that requires um, either a doctor here or in some countries, it doesn't, it doesn't require a prescription. So metformin originally came out to help with diabetes, correct? Exactly. It's the frontline medicine for type 2 diabetes. But what we've discovered, well, the field has discovered, is that when you look at type 2 diabetics, tens of thousands of them, and ask what's their rate of cancer and heart disease, Alzheimer's frailty, it's lower than people that didn't take metformin, even if they're not diabetic. So that tells us that metformin and AMPK activation is very likely to slow down the aging process in humans because it's protecting against pretty much all the diseases that we get when we get older, including cancer. Wow. Or some types of cancer. Okay. So now, does metformin have any response? It, it, well, you said it, it shuts down the, the mTOR response. So if somebody is trying to build muscle tissue, but they want to increase their lifespan, is there, assuming they get a prescription for this, is there a way that they can kind of have the best of both worlds? Uh, we don't know, but I think so. And I'm still testing this on myself. Now, there are a few baseline facts. Uh-huh. Let's get things straight. So metformin and resveratrol, which activate the sirtuins, and lack of amino acids will stop the body from building a lot of muscle, but okay. it'll still build up. Okay. So in the case of these two new metformin studies that looked at muscle bulk and strength while taking metformin or not, the results were overblown. Now, usually we all look at the differences between the two groups, but the similarities were there. The similarities were that every group built up muscle when they exercised. Yeah. But the size of the muscles was slightly smaller in the metformin group. So if you're a bodybuilder for, for your living or an athlete, mm-hmm. you know, be careful. But if you're like me and all you're trying to do is impress your wife and even that doesn't help, <laughs> uh, then metformin's a pretty good thing to do. But I'm also trying to optimize what I'm doing and learn and 
educate people what I'm learning about. Right. So what I find, what I'm trying anyway, is that I'm not taking metformin on the days I go to the gym. Okay. Because I want the damage to my muscles. I want the free radicals to stimulate the muscle growth. Right. But on days where I'm not hurting, I'm not sore, then I take the metformin. The other thing to know about metformin is that it didn't blunt the strength of the muscles. So if you're an elderly person on metformin and you work huh. out like my dad, he's stronger than I am. He doesn't have to worry about metformin. He's got blunting. that old man strength. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah. Uh, he went to the gym with me and my trainer put us through up two paces and he beat my ass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm sure he liked doing that. Okay. So, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of studies come out and you know people just read the headlines. So, I, that's a good quantification to um, look at that. Now, you talk about uh, things that we can do um, and that one thing when you first moved here, walking around in the cold, that you wore a big jacket and why should people expose themselves to getting cold? Because every doctor will say, oh, you go out and get in the cold, you're, you're going to catch a cold. What's yeah. that all about? Yeah, my wife's German. She says she'll you'll catch a cold from the draft. You know, I'm a microbiologist by training. That's a bunch of <laughs> now. It's true. In winter, you have more flu and colds because the droplets that spit out of people as they sneeze don't dry up immediately. Okay, so you can catch it. But as long as you wash your hands and try not to get in the way of people sneezing, you'll be okay. I haven't had a cold in in more than a year. Maybe it's going on two years. I can't remember the last time I got sick. So whatever I'm doing is working. But yeah, getting cold, I'm not getting colds from getting cold. I right. do that now. And it's again all about hormesis, getting out of your body's comfort zone, yeah. tricking your body into thinking times are tough. And cold and heat, we think are two things that help with that. Okay. And these sirtuins that we study, there are seven of them in the body and they're turned on not just by fasting and exercise, but by cold, maybe by heat, but definitely cold. And they get turned on in what's called brown fat, which we've only recently known about for 10 years in humans. And you can find it across your back. And when you have more brown fat, we think it's very healthy. It certainly is more metabolic, more mitochondria, burns energy. And the only way to get it going is to be cold. So if your your teeth are chattering, you know that your body's going to be producing brown fat. Okay. But here's one thing that I learned uh, from a researcher. He said that old mice don't build much brown fat. So if that's true for us, you want to be building up your brown fat when you're young and keeping it going. Okay. Uh, a lot of things are much harder when you're older to to do, of course. Okay. So start young. So may maybe take a walk in the winter with a t-shirt on, or I mean, we could freezing cold showers do it. Yeah, yeah. As long as you're feeling uncomfortable, that's probably a good sign. Okay. You know, we're averse to feeling uncomfortable, but I think what we've learned this century is you got to get out of that. It, it's not healthy to always be comfortable. So yeah, walk with in in the snow if you're in a cold climate. Uh -huh. I typically don't bundle up a lot. I sleep with few covers. I, I like to be a little cool at night. I okay. sleep better anyway and I'm burning energy. Uh, and I also dunk in a cold water bath about four degrees Celsius. Oh, uh, man. Makes me shiver. My son comes with me. He spends about 15 minutes in there and I'm done by a minute. <laughs> and so, we cycle between the sauna and the cold plunge okay. and we think that that's helping. When I first looked at this for my book, I was skeptical that these things would actually help with longevity and yeah. health. The science is actually pretty good, especially on saunas. Nordic men who go to the sauna a few times a week do have lower rates of heart disease. Now, there's, there are some caveats, of course. You always have to be skeptical about these things. And yeah. it could be that men who are in hospital or are sick don't go to the sauna. There's yeah. that. But 
No, I, I looked at the data and it looks pretty convincing. So that's why I do it every weekend. Okay. Getting uncomfortable. And you also talk about, obviously we need to exercise, but in specifically high intensity interval training. Right. The more intense, the better, as long as it doesn't hurt you permanently. The good news is you don't need to be running marathons yeah. to get the benefits. 10 minutes of high intensity interval training is great. Okay. Again, mix it up. So I, I do a combination of weights, stretching, and high intensity running. And that does me, it takes me about two hours to do that. Then I go down and do the sauna. So that's three hours with my son every yeah. weekend. I've never felt better. And I, I don't run a lot because I'm busy. I'm usually working till midnight. Mm-hmm. So I've got this standing desk here in my office. I see that's, that. That's actually helped. I was falling apart actually. The, writing this book was two years of sitting down on my couch and then whenever I could, a lot of airplane rides. Yeah. And I could barely walk. I was I thought I was becoming an old man. My piriformis muscle was cramped permanently. Very piriformis is the muscle that holds your hips together, your leg to your hip. So what is it now? It's six months since I've stopped writing the book and uh, I'm totally back to normal, feeling great. But I think one of the big exercises that helps me and other people my age is the hip flexing mm. exercises. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of deadlifts and that's made a huge difference to how I feel, how I walk and overall stability. And stability is key to longevity. There's a saying in, in our field that the secret to longevity is hanging onto the handrail. And it is true. Every 19 minutes, someone falls and dies from it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, hip hinge and you know, um, working on those intervals, I mean, since it's my first time in Boston, I, f- I found a hill and I did 10 sprints up the hill, probably 40 to 60 yards today in the cold. It's about 40 degrees. And like, David would probably tell me to do this. So I, I'm, I'm going to do this. And, and, and I felt great. My face was frozen, but I felt good afterwards. I got up and I did something. It took me 15 minutes and I was in and out and you know, on, my, on my way here. Now, what do you do every day? You've got a list of things um, in your book and, and this is what you do. So obviously, this, this is what you've found that works for you. What are a few things that people can do every day? Um, I know you talk about like, you don't endorse any supplementation, but there's a few things that you take that potentially could be helping with your lifespan. Yeah. So besides the exercise and the diet, I'm supplementing that because these molecules that we've discovered and worked on over the years mimic diet and exercise. So we get the hopefully the double the benefit. So we I start the morning with a homemade yogurt. I made some yesterday out of special bacteria. For, I buy it from a company called Bravo. No, okay. no connection to me, but love that. Mix resveratrol into that, a spoonful of resveratrol, a little teaspoon, okay. dissolves nicely. Resveratrol, we've shown for many years, is, is a remarkable molecule that activates one of the sirtuin en- enzymes. Uh-huh. So that, that works. If you don't take it as a dry pill, it just won't be absorbed much. Okay. Uh, I also take three to four capsules of NMN, which is an NAD boosting molecule, stands okay. for nicotinamide mononucleotide. And uh, that can just be taken with water. And I also have a metformin pill. One in the morning, 500 milligrams, and one at night, 500 milligrams. So it's a total of 1,000, okay. which is a low-level diabetes dose. And I can see the benefits. I can see that my inflammation went down. Uh, my overall body fat went down because metformin for me makes me less hungry, which is great Right? because I'm a big eater, a stress eater. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, so those are the main three things. I do other things that are listed. Some of them um, are vitamin D2 and, and K2. Uh-huh. And- I also occasionally take some folate or uh, methyl donors just in case there's a dysregulation of my methyl. Now, the science behind that is a little complicated to mm-hmm. describe quickly, but 
when you raise NAD levels, one of the, the problems might be that the body's excreting that molecule in urine, taking methyls with it. I maintain that with, so you can buy methyl folate or methyl B12, which, okay. is, which is good for me anyway, I think. That makes, I mean, that makes sense. And then you've got some other things that really simple, skip, skip a meal every day, you know, limit your sugar intake. You gave up desserts, which, you know, is a problem for me. I have a piece of pie and I eat, I eat the entire thing. Don't smoke, you know, work out and obviously, you know, sleep and all of those kind of no brainer things we should continue to do. Now you say we could potentially live to 120 years old. Should we? Well, I put it to you. Shouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> if we're healthy, I, I, I would. I would think so. All right, I've got one more question for you, Doctor David Sinclair. He told me not to tell him to call him that. Lifespan. What do you think? Is this going to be the fad, or is this a future? Well, we're living in the future already, mm. right? We we're a lot longer lived than we used to be, and the the trajectory of human lifespan it has been going up linearly for the last two hundred years. It's going to continue if this research continues to pan out, which means that a kid born today in the US can live to 104 on average. Wow. And in Japan, it would be 107. There you go, son. You're going to live to 104 years old. And, and David said he's got a hookup in your lab, buddy, and you are going to be getting into Harvard. That, that's all you need to do. Just, just get in. You have to stay here until he's 17, 18 years old. You can, you can leave afterwards. You just need to help get him in. Deal. I have no plans. <laughs> All right, David Sinclair, thank you very much. This was another episode of the Fad or Future podcast. I'm Joey Thurman. And remember, don't be a fatty. Yeah, fatty. You got that F-A-D-D-Y. Yeah. David's smiling over here. <laughs> All right, take care, guys. Have a great day. Well, I think I'm going to live until maybe 105, 120 seems a little crazy. That was an amazing episode. Next week, we have Kelsey Heenan. The Daily Kelsey, if you follow her on Instagram and social media. She's also the co-founder of Hit Burn. She has almost 2 million people on Instagram follower. What motivates her? What was the struggle she had when she was young that got her to be where she is today? What's the future of social media? How can she empower women? How can she empower everybody? And she takes me through a workout. She kicks the crap out of me. You don't want to miss next week with Kelsey Heenan.